Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest, and I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. It's the California Report magazine. And on today's show, we visit a school district on the Central Coast where 40% of students are homeless. But my mom tells her it's going to be okay to me and my sister. Sometimes I feel it's not going to be okay. Plus a grandpa who helped spark Californian support for the Mexican Revolution a century ago. And how a ranch in Santa Barbara inspired a craze for a food you can find at Super Bowl parties across the nation. It was meant to be a dude ranch, a guest ranch, but they started making more money off the salad dressing. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Over the last few weeks, volunteers in many California cities have been out counting how many people are homeless. The idea is to get a snapshot of people living on the street at any given time, including kids who drift in and out of homelessness because of their family situation. You can really see this in one school district in Monterey County, where 40 percent of the students are homeless. The California Report's education reporter, Vanessa Rancaño, talked to kids and teachers to find out how they're coping. On a weeknight, the homeless shelter in downtown Salinas is packed beyond capacity. Dinner's over and people are watching TV on folding chairs or trying to sleep in their private rooms. There are no doors to keep out the noise of babies crying and children playing in the halls. There are 25 kids here, almost a third of those spending the night. I came hoping to hear from them. A 12-year-old named Gisbel, who started seventh grade this year, tells me she's finding it tough to get her homework done. For me, like, it's hard because, like, I don't have internet here except for my mom's hotspot, which I use sometimes. But, like, when it comes to, like, typing homework, I can't finish because, like, the bedtime's around 9, and I don't finish at that time. Living here also means she can't do the after-school activities she likes. So, like, it's hard for me to do anything that any 
any stuff that I love to do. Like, I'm, I wasn't wrestling, but then I had to get out. As soon as school is out, Gisbel and her family head to a free shower facility. Then they come straight to the shelter to make the check-in time. It's been hard on my family and on me and every pet I had. Gisbel's younger sister, Siley, is sitting nearby listening and eating a cup of noodles. Her t-shirt's a little dirty, a little too small. She says she wants to talk, and we're going to take just a little longer than normal to listen. Hi, I'm Siley. I'm 10. What have the last few months been like for you? Pain just feels sometimes that we're not might be able to get a house, but I keep praying. Sometimes I feel like, sometimes I feel like my family might lose me. I feel like they might take me away from my family. I don't want to live in a shelter forever. I want to get home too. All those other people. All I see is other people happy because they have a home and have money. But some people don't. These people have children. Sometimes children want more things. But the parents don't have enough money. Dad works, sometimes my mom does too. We just don't have enough. Siley's parents are sitting next to us. They fall silent. Next to them, a local teacher who works with homeless students is listening too. She leans in. School's just been, I can't concentrate real good. I got bullied last year. I do have a hard time making friends. But my mom tells her it's going to be okay to me and my sister. Sometimes I feel it's not going to be okay. I'm grateful when the teacher, Cheryl Kameny, steps in. In eight or ten more years, you could be a social worker helping other people in whatever community you live in. And you would be perfect for that job. Thank you. So keep that in the back of your head. Kameny has been working with homeless students for almost two decades. She's seen this crisis build, in part because people are getting priced out of Silicon Valley, crowding the market here. In Monterey County, because of lack of affordable renting or even low-income housing, the only other option is if they want to stay and work in this area is you've got to double, triple up or motels or pitch a tent or whatever it takes. Part of her job is to show other teachers how to talk to these students and best support them. Kameny teaches them how much a single adult can help by asking questions, listening, and offering a stable source of support. Sometimes I need pencils, erasers, and they need pens. My I have lots of school supplies. Like which ones? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what you need. You guys are uniform shirt. Yeah. We have uniforms, don't we? You think you're going to be here tomorrow night? We don't. We're, we're not at a point. When I called to see how the family was doing a couple weeks later, their phone was disconnected. Eventually, they left me a voicemail. They said their phone got stolen and they'd just gotten a new one. They were still at the shelter. I called back for days, but... You have reached the voicemail box of... I got more and more worried. When I finally reached someone at the shelter who knew the family, she said they were gone. After two months at the shelter, they'd found a place to live. Temporary housing. Not yet a home. 
That story comes to us from the California Report's education reporter, Vanessa Rancaño. Vanessa talked to a lot of people in Salinas who work with homeless students, and we asked her to tell us a little bit more about what she discovered. So, Vanessa, it's shocking to me that some 40 percent of students in this district are considered homeless. Does that mean they're all living in shelters? No, definitely not. The vast majority are actually housed, but housed in really crowded or substandard housing where they may not have regular access to a bathroom, to a kitchen, to a place to wash their clothes. They may not have a place where they can get good sleep, a place where they can do their homework. I spent some time with a family of six that's living with seven other people, so 13 people in a two-bedroom apartment with just one bathroom. And I met their little daughter, Esther, who's five years old and in kindergarten, and she found a rare quiet moment at the kitchen table to do her homework. She needed to cut out some vocabulary words from her worksheet, um, and she needed a pair of scissors. Yeah, look, you need some scissors. And what are you going to do? Ah, you're going to cut the letters out? And put it here with blue. Oh, so you need some scissors. And we can buy it. Yeah. My sister's so what did the teachers you talked to say about working with students like Esther, students who don't have access to things like scissors or a place to do their homework? Right. I mean, they talked about kids not having any resources at home. It's not just things like scissors. It could be access to the Internet books, a place to study, a place to sleep. I talked to a teacher at an elementary school in Salinas named Maria Castellanos, and more than 80% of her third graders this year are considered homeless. It's like if one falls asleep in my classroom because they had a bad night at home, I'm like, I'm not waking her up. I'm like, she's, she, she may need to sleep more than anything else. She said this makes teaching really hard. I asked Maria, and another teacher at this same school, Oscar Ramos, why they're so committed to teaching these students, right? Why they've spent more than 20 years each at this one school. The children that are here, I get emotional. They're like me. They know that I lived that same life. I grew up in a migrant camp. We lived in a labor camp till I was about 11 years old. I worked in the ag fields from the time I was seven years old. My dad worked in the fields. It was a two tiny bedroom. I don't even know if I want to call it home because it wasn't really a home. You know, farm workers on the Central Coast and and around the state have been struggling with substandard housing for a long time. What's behind the spike in homeless kids now? Part of it is definitely demographics. There's a lot of really low-wage workers in these communities, and housing prices have gone up so dramatically there. Um, But another piece of it is that Monterey County, and especially this district I was referring to in Salinas, are doing a particularly good job of keeping track of these students. The state reports that there are some 400 districts around California that don't report a single homeless student, right? Even though any homeless advocate would tell you that these students are in just about any community in the state. That's a big deal because that means any homeless students in those districts are not getting access to the protections that they're entitled to that are meant to give them equal access to an education. Vanessa, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Vanessa Rancaño is the California Report's education reporter. You can read and listen to more of her reporting about homeless students on the Central Coast at CaliforniaReport.org. 
There are a lot of myths out there about people struggling with homelessness. One of the most common is that there's nothing one person can really do to make a difference. KQED's Ryan Levy spoke with an 81-year-old man who's proving that wrong. His name is Horace Crawford, and he's a volunteer at a homeless shelter in Walnut Creek in Contra Costa County. Hey, I'm uh, Horace Crawford. I'm a retired architectural engineer, and I've been uh, working with the homeless for about 10 years. What is, say, like an average day for you? What do you do? Well, I have this uh, Ford pickup truck, and I am uh, basically consider myself on call to help anybody that needs to get someplace or to move something or to help them get some uh, part-time day work. Some days I may get a call, could you help me get over to county hospital to get some lab tests done? The next day someone wants to move something out of their storage unit. People are a bit afraid of working with a homeless person. But if they know me and I vouch for someone, they're okay. The result is I got a bunch of friends that I've never had before. So one of the things that we hear a lot about uh, homelessness is that it's such a big problem. There's nothing that one person could do to make an impact. They're, they're looking at too much of the broad picture. Just go and start helping. Just go and start volunteering. You may find this to be one of the most important things you've ever done. I agree, we cannot help them all, but we can help a few. And I feel that uh, together, a group of us can help quite a few. That was Horace Crawford talking to reporter Ryan Levy. You can check out more of our coverage about homeless Californians online at californiareport.org. exploring the idea of the California dream and whether that dream is still alive for people. We've been asking you, our listeners, to write a letter to the first person in your family who came to California. This week's letter comes from Pasadena resident Lada Medina. She wrote it to her grandfather, who migrated to Northern California from Mexico more than 100 years ago. His California dream was bigger than himself. Dignity for all workers on both sides of the border. Writing for a revolutionary newspaper, Lada's grandfather helped mobilize Californians in support of the Mexican Revolution. Dear Grandfather Blas, In the midst of the Porfirio Diaz dictatorship that kept Mexican campesinos in poverty, you left your small pueblo outside of Jalisco to find work. In the big city of Guadalajara, you were exposed to talk of unions and revolution. Working as a bricklayer and stonemason, you continued to be exploited. So in 1902, you decided to leave Mexico for the United States. You crossed the border at El Paso, Texas, then traveled by train to San Francisco. Eventually, you found steady work in the logging industry at Fort Bragg in Mendocino County. 
your budding revolutionary consciousness found a place amongst the socialist-minded workers from Europe. You attempted to organize your fellow workers to form a union, but your employer, the Union Lumber Company, ironically did not believe in unions. You were subsequently fired. Upon the outbreak of the Mexican Revolution in 1910, you relocated to Los Angeles to join exiled members of the Partido Liberal Mexicano. You helped the cause by editing and writing for their binational newspaper called Regeneración. The next 10 years spent in Los Angeles saw you become a public speaker, rallying workers of all ethnicities. When the revolution ended and the newspaper was no longer published, you returned to Northern California in 1918. You then settled in West Berkeley, where you married and raised four children. Growing up, I remember visiting you in your small wooden house on Fifth Street. Once a month, my parents, sister and I, would cross the bay from Marin County in our blue Mercury. On these visits, you never spoke much, but you communicated your sentiments by the look in your eyes and the feel of your handshake. When you'd shake my hand, you'd say, you will be a school teacher. You were right, I am now a professor, but for most of my life, I was unaware of your time as a laborer and activist nor did I know that you spent most of your days and nights writing about your past. Then my father died in 2002, and I inherited your memoir from him. Ten years later, I finally read it and learned about your clandestine life. You were a self-taught writer and revolutionary, committed to the freedom of Mexican people on both sides of the border. Thank you, Grandfather, for the sacrifices you made so that your family, now living in Los Angeles and the Bay Area, can live with dignity and carry on the struggle for justice in our own ways. Love, your granddaughter, Lada. That's Lada Medina with a letter to her grandfather, Blas. We'd love to hear your letter to your family's original California dreamer. We've got an easy form on our website where you can tell us your story, californiareport.org. Our next story is about something as ubiquitous as ketchup and mustard. It's everywhere, and it'll be showing up at Super Bowl parties across the nation. But I bet you didn't know ranch dressing is a California concoction. And the place that gave the creamy buttermilk dressing its name was a real ranch. Peter Gilstrap brings us the story for our series Golden State Plate. Come with us to Hidden Valley where the ranch dressing says fresh in every creamy bite. Come to the valley, Hidden Valley, where the taste of ranch was born. Well, that's not exactly true. 
The lush, sunny expanse you see in this vintage TV commercial for the world's most popular salad dressing is about 2,000 miles south of the real birthplace of Hidden Valley Ranch dressing. But frozen Alaskan bush dressing just doesn't have the same ring to it. So there's a man named Steve Henson, and I believe he was from Nebraska, and he and his wife uh, moved up to Alaska in the late 40s, early 50s. That's Los Angeles food writer Catherine Spires. She hosts the culinary history podcast, Smart Mouth. He was a contractor, um, I believe working as a plumber for Alaskan oil companies. And when he was working on crews out there in the tundra, he also became a cook for all the crews, which was just a hobby of his. He enjoyed doing it. Henson came up with a buttermilk-based dressing, mixing in garlic, salt, pepper, herbs, and spices. The crews loved it, but after three years in the wild, Henson's contract was up. And though he was done with Alaska, it had given him the magical, still nameless salad dressing that was to change his life and the lives of salad lovers forever. Then he and his wife Gail moved down to Santa Barbara County and bought a ranch that they named Hidden Valley Ranch. It was meant to be a dude ranch, a guest ranch, but they started making more money off the salad dressing that they had made and popularized there. But it was not an overnight success. In the mid-50s, the Hensons worked hard to keep things afloat, fixing up their rundown dude ranch in the San Marcos Pass, just north of Santa Barbara. And when things started to get busy, Gail would single-handedly cook up 300 steak dinners a night and then entertain guests by playing the organ. And they gave the ranch the right name. It was off the road, just a little sign carved out of wood that said Hidden Valley Ranch. But when you got in there, the ranch house was quite nice. That's Carol Henson. She's married to Nolan Henson, the son of Stephen Gale, who've both passed away. These days, Nolan is suffering from poor health, but Hidden Valley Ranch was his career. It was his whole life. Carol met Nolan when he hired her to work for the company. She knew the whole family. Steve was a little Dickens, but he came up with that, and it's just gone, as they say nowadays, viral. <laughs> but he told me that they fooled around with it for a while, and it was invented so they can buy booze and cigarettes. <laughs> Ranch visitors demanded jars of the stuff to take home, which led to the Hensons creating a powdered version. That really took off, and they were able to mail the mix anywhere in the country. In fact, Nolan's very first job as a kid was putting the mix into envelopes. By the early 70s, Hidden Valley Ranch was a phenomenon, in demand at supermarkets and salad bars nationwide. In 1972, the Hensons bowed out of the dressing game, selling their name and recipe to the company that owns Pine Sol, Mr. Plumber, and Fresh Step Kitty Litter. They sold it to Clorox Corporation. They had a big party with a whole bunch. They have tons of attorneys. And they tried to get Nolan drunk, but uh, he kept throwing the drinks in the planter. <laughs> so, Why were they trying to get him drunk? Less money. If he signed something, you know, there you yeah. go. The Hensons ultimately got $8 million for the dressing. Good money back in 72 and a good deal for Clorox. In 2017, Hidden Valley Products earned more than $450 million. All for that simple little concoction, but it was the taste of California. 
Again, Catherine Spires. I would imagine that in its original incarnation, when it was served at Hidden Valley Ranch in Santa Barbara County, that it did taste like California because the, a big part of it is all the herbs in it. Are they using fresh herbs in the mass-produced Clorox product now? No, why would they? <laughs> it would go bad. So no, I don't necessarily think it tastes like California as is, but you can make your own ranch dressing. It's relatively simple. And that absolutely tastes like California. And it's a taste that Nolan Henson still enjoys. Oh, of course. Of course he does. We still make us a quart now and then. We have the ingredients and stuff, but nobody's getting them because they have to figure it out on their own. Good luck with that. For the California Report, I'm Peter Gilstrap in Los Angeles. We'd love to hear your ideas for other California foods we should explore in our Golden State Plate series. You can drop us a line at calreport at kqed.org. That's calreport at kqed.org. Next week, we're bringing you nothing but love. Stories for Valentine's Day about people falling in love, being in love, and staying in love. We'll meet a 93-year-old DJ who's been spinning love songs nonstop for 75 years. Ah, yeah. Smooth operator. We're in the love zone. Welcome to the love zone. Hey, let me tell you something. There's a lot of smooth operators in this part of our program. (laughs) And a lot of love, love in the air, that's for sure. Let me give you the big one. Here's the big one. And a pair of swimmers who have a cold water romance. We'll hear the special calls they use in the chilly waters of the San Francisco Bay. When Roberta and I started swimming together more regularly, it was a good way to signal to each other. (laughs) And if that's not for you... Tune in the day after Valentine's Day for our show dedicated to breakups. We want to hear from you. Sometimes music can help mend a broken heart. We want to know what song got you through a bad split. Hi, this is Molly calling from Bolinas. Two songs saved me in the 1980s when a guy totally broke my heart. And even though, looking back, he wasn't the right guy for me and was definitely trouble, it took me years to recover. And of course, the first song is Gloria Gaynor's Gift to the World, I Will Survive, which I sang to myself daily. But the other one was the Buzzcocks, Ever Fallen in Love because this guy was a punk rocker and introduced me to punk and so I could listen to that and think of him and have a perspective on it all. It was 
was a long time ago, and it all worked out for me. Bye. You can leave us your message. Call us at 415-830-6580. That's 415-830-6580. And in a couple sentences, tell us about your breakup song and why it helped you. We might use your message on the show for our California Breakup Playlist. And that's it for our show this week. If you missed any of the show, you can subscribe to our podcast, The California Report Magazine. Just look for the bear wearing earbuds. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Bianca Taylor is our director this week. Our technical producer is Seal Muller, and we had additional engineering help from Rob Spate. Victoria Maleone is our senior editor. David Marks is our online producer, and our intern is Asal Isanipur. The California Report's editorial team also includes Susie Racho, Rachel Myro, Julia McAvoy, Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Follow me on Twitter at KQED Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from College Futures Foundation. More graduates for a thriving California. Learn more at collegefutures.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems and the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.